Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. We're back with another episode in our series of clinical and health science research. This is a collaboration between Behind the Knife and the Association of Academic Surgery, and I'm joined once again by Fabian Johnston, who is the Section Chief of GI Oncology and Program Director for Complex General Surgical Oncology Fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the uh, Chair of the Clinical and Health Services Research Committee for the uh, AAS. So Fabian, uh, why don't you tell us who we're interviewing today? All right, welcome. We are really happy to have uh, Dr. Julianne Sosa. She is a professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, and holds the Leon Goldman Distinguished Professorship in Surgery. It's an endocrine surgeon extraordinaire. Um, and so we're very happy to have you here, Dr. Sosa. Happy to be here. So we like to just, um, you know, you kind of have the, the scope of this. Really, we're talking about HSR research. And so we'd love to know how you began um, your career. Um, I know about you because you hang in the walls of Hopkins. And so we're all every Hopkins faculty's homework to know uh, who where, where we came from. And so um, tell us how you kind of got started in your career. So if the shortest distance between two points is a line I will have never traveled along that line in my career. Um, and um, I sort of um, came to where I am probably taking the least or less traveled pathway and almost certainly um, have not been efficient in my career, particularly as it pertains to my science. Um I guess the way I started, and there are some teaching points that I think will emerge from my story, um, lessons learned. I, I started with uh, interest in um, economics and public policy. And when I was in college, I actually uh, majored in public and international affairs. And I anticipated uh, going into a career as a PhD um, uh, focused in labor economics. And so after college, I spent two years uh, in England, and I did a degree in what was called human sciences, but it was really demography and geography, which is two words that Americans don't use very often. It's very European, but it was intended to enhance my pursuit of, of this career as a PhD in economics. And I was um, planning on going uh, into um, graduate school. And uh, simultaneously, I was um, working on a book, actually, two books, um, which ultimately were published. And the irony, and there is irony, is uh, that the, the first book was called Prospects for Faculty in the Arts and Sciences. It was published in 1989 by the Princeton University Press. And basically, what it foretold was what my career path would look like in that we made projections of the labor market for PhDs in the arts and sciences, meaning my own future. And sadly, what we anticipated over the next 25 years is that I would be unemployed and would not have a job. And probably neither of you were even alive then, but this was a time period when um, the average time to degree was anywhere from 13 to 15 years. Um, uh, PhDs were driving taxi cabs. 
And so I had one of those um, introspective moments um, where my own science suggested that I would um, uh, really not have a place. And so I actually, I remember to this day, I, uh, it was good science, it was good economics, um, but it was really depressing. And so I remember calling my parents, my dad, both my parents were in healthcare, and I said, geez, I, I need to do a switch back here. I, I got to do something different. And my dad said, literally, why don't you go to medical school? Doctors always have jobs. And I didn't really have um, a plan B. So I looked at the uh, medical school landscape, and I hadn't taken MCATs. Um, I was really behind, and this was pre, pre -bac uh, post-baccalaureate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was one medical school in um, 1989 that, uh, to my read, did not require an MCAT, and that was Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So um, I applied to an N of one, and better lucky than good, and um, the rest is history. Um, but I'll tell you, it, it, it always remained in my head that my background was in economics, and had I really thrown it all away, because I loved what I was doing, I, I loved the innovation, I loved the creativity, I loved the quantitative econometrics, I loved the quantitative analysis. And so when it came time to do research um, during my residency, which was after the second year in Baltimore, I um, elected to do uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Fellowship. And I really did health services research. It wasn't cool then. In fact, no one was really doing it. Um, but I wanted to do it because I felt I would be able to pivot and incorporate some of what I actually knew how to do. And, um, you know, s serendipity is a great thing. And I... Um, I think the die was ultimately cast when two things happened. One is that my chair, Dr. Cameron, um, who didn't know anything about health services research, but I think he was not so risk-averse and was willing to take a risk. And second is I met an exceptional individual, um, a gentleman by the name of Neil Poe. He was a um, an internist. Um, interested in end-stage renal disease, uh, nephrology. Um, he's, uh, was an, he is an African-American man, didn't look like me. His career did not in any way resemble mine. But I met him, and it was transformative. Um, the other irony is today he is the chief of medicine at San Francisco General Hospital, and uh, we uh, collaborate as if the 25 years um, disappeared. Um, and that's the serendipity. And working with him, he helped me to understand how I could use my life experience and incorporate it into surgery. And uh, what's my point? So there's, I always say, I think there's some learning to be done. One is that I, I, I think that life is rich and um, sometimes taking the longer path, it, it is the better path. Um, second is I really believe that fate is very powerful and there are ways to bring together so many different threads to weave a fabric that in the end 
it's like a quilt. It comes together. Um, third is this idea of serendipity and openness to different experiences and to different people. We talk a lot about mentorship. And I think a lot of people believe mentors are familiar, but I would argue mentors can be incredibly unfamiliar. And I think that is how you grow. Um, and then, you know, lastly, it's about risk-taking. And um, I, uh, I think sometimes in surgery, you know, it's practice makes perfect and you sort of become risk-averse. Uh, but I actually think calculated risk is um, really important to make a component of your life, both personal and professional. Wow. <laughs> I think, you know, there was a lot that was packed into there. Um, and we're going to tease some of those things out. And first, I was in middle school in 89. Okay, so all I, right. I do look this good. You're right. I understand. You uh, do look good, Fabian. <laughs> um, so, but, so I, what I do want to, you know, what you, what you kind of ended off in saying um, was, you know, some people come into this, um, I was a psych major myself, and, you know, I really didn't know. Um, and I think one of the common threads for folks like yourself who are trailblazers who were successful was they didn't all completely have it all figured out. And I think there's a perception on the residence part right now, and certainly early faculty, we have to have it all figured out, right? And so can you, uh, and certainly you had um, Dr. Cameron that was said, okay, you know, do the Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars, which I don't imagine there were many, and I know a few, and there weren't many surgeons doing this at the time, right? And so how did you have the kind of chutzpah uh, to, to look into this and, you know, feel comfortable enough? And how did you sell it to the boss who didn't really understand what this was? Yeah. Foolishness. <laughs> the naivete. Mm -hmm. The courage that comes with naivete. Um you know, I think some of it was assembling um, a mentorship team um, and people who were more mature, more informed, and at that time more articulate than I was. And, you know, my mentorship team, and I, I say this to people, you know, sadly, there are many more poor mentors in the world than there are good mentors. And we focus a lot on good mentors. And in fact, I think we should focus more on bad mentors and how to identify them, how to extricate yourself from them. But I feel like I've been very blessed. And um, I think the best way to interact with mentors is to actually, if you can, have a mentorship team. And so my mentorship team at that time, I had advocacy uh, who were people who went and spoke to Dr. Cameron in a compelling way. Those were Neil Poe and Leon Gordis, uh, who's passed. And uh, he was a card-carrying epidemiologist, a PhD at, um, at, uh, at Hopkins. Um, and uh, that was the first thing. I think the second thing was to appeal to uh, Dr. Cameron using a language that he understood. And so... Um, two of the earliest studies that we did, um, one of those I did together with Dr. Cameron. Um, and so, you know, I used a language and a lexicon that included the word pancreatic duodenectomy and Whipple and um, doing more, you on average do better. 
And um, it, I think, was um, another way to make something that was unfamiliar familiar. And, uh, and then we did a similar study uh, in thyroidectomy. And interesting enough, the thyroidectomy paper is probably still cited much more than the Whipple um, paper. But I think that was the other thing is um, having the advocacy, having the support of mentors to give me courage, and then, um, you know, finding um, common ground with people where they um, could understand the importance because it actually was pertinent to what he did each and every day. And um, I think that was how to open the door a little bit. And then, of course, once the door is open, then it's all you. You've got to run. And um, I think um, there are many people who allowed me to run fast, um, uh, but that's how it went down. So to this day, I'm thankful to Dr. Cameron, uh, Dr. Poe, and Dr. Gordis. So th- what I see there is a couple of things. Certainly the uh, advocacy was important, yeah. but there was clearly some intentionality on your part that, you know, let's be honest, I think there's a mixed bag for, um, for the trainee, right? And whether they say, I just want to do this, you should let me do this, maybe. Um, but there was certainly intentionality to even um, um, have these discussions with these advocates, these sponsors, um, and um, but certainly they probably helped guide you then on the process of saying we need to talk to your chair and and help sell this to them. Uh, that's that probably reasonable to say. Yeah, I think that's right. I you know I think that um, I think risk taking um, and. And doing things that are different um, is very hard um, because um, there often there's no model there, um, uh, so a path to follow. Um, there's the activation energy that you have to generate. There's fear um, that comes with it, and I will say in my life I've. I've had a couple of these little fits and starts. Um, There was this one around sort of science. The second one, you know, is very interesting, but it it starts to, you'll see a pattern of behavior is, you know, in terms of my clinical practice. And you you know, Fabian, I trained uh, in Baltimore and I trained to be a a pancreatic surgeon. Um, And I went to my first job and I did that for about three years. And only then did I realize that that was not the right fit for, for me and who I wanted to be. And so I had to sort of recreate myself. And I think today learners um, are more mature than uh, we were. Maybe they had more courage, but they're more mature. And I think in both the clinical and the science Um, aspects of my life, it took me probably longer than it should to realize that some of the decisions I might have been making were decisions that I felt were right for other people, but not necessarily right for myself. And um, to sort of switch back um, takes courage in retrospect, courage probably I didn't have initially, but I think that I have gained in life. And I think you know, the teaching point is that doing new things, 
the potential for gain with innovation is so great, but you have to accept that you may fail. And uh, I definitely have learned about myself that I'm that person. I'm not the person who probably should conform. Um, so there is a part of me that I think played a part, but no small part of it was the mentorship that I had. So let's fast forward a little bit. You're now a trained pancreatic surgeon. You go off, take your job, right? First job. And then, so you've got to be productive, right? We have metrics we need to hit. We've got to keep getting promoted. Then you've got a skill set behind you. How now as a early career faculty, how did you kind of develop yourself um, within this? Yeah, so on the research side, I think it is important to align yourself with a larger community. And um, in surgery at that time, there was not a health services research community. So one of the benefits of going to New Haven, I went to Yale, was that there was a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program there. And Harlan Krumholtz uh, was the... Uh, just recently uh, stepped down as the leader of it, but a very famous cardiologist and health services researcher. And so I think one thing was to align myself with the program. So a lot of my mentorship came from outside of surgery, and I would encourage people today to not restrict your community to that of surgery, but to widen it to include people who have skill sets that are complementary, not redundant, but com uh, complementary and not competitive to yours. So I think that was one thing. I think a second thing was this idea of um, working with learners. And I, at that time, I did not negotiate well. I did not have a research assistant, a research associate. I had none of those things. Um, but I, we had terrific residents, and we had residents who were starting to hear about health services research and who wanted to also train in this Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. And one of them, uh, well, a couple of them really stand out. One is Lauren Berman, who is now, sadly, for me, because it reminds me of how old I am, <laughs> she's just became an associate professor uh, in Delaware in pediatric surgery. And the second was Heather Yeo. And Heather, of course, is an associate professor in colorectal surgery at Cornell. And um, both of these people served really as my collaborators um, because there weren't other surgeons in the department doing this. And so it sort of was um, sort of they gave back so much to me. And um, hopefully I was able to mentor them. And the cool thing is today we remain now really good colleagues and colleagues. It's crazy to think colleagues and, um, and friends. But the success comes from, I think, uh, Establishing a larger community, finding people who have complementary skills and expertise that you do not have, working in a team setting, um, and uh, working with um, mentees. Uh, uh, you know, they, um, uh, yeah, it's giving back, but it's also growth. And um, yeah, it's a lifelong relationship, I think, mentorship. We talk about much shorter term things, but I actually think it is something that should be calibrated over decades. So what I, what I took from that, uh, the couple of things, certainly f folks often focus on, oh, well, we don't have um, somebody in surgery doing this. And often 
um, our leaders don't necessarily know what other people are doing if it's not within their bailiwick. And so, uh, again, I think that intentionality comes again in terms of identifying those folks within your communities um, that do this. Uh, one thing that I do want to try and focus on a little bit is often um, you don't, when you're finishing fellowship, you don't know where the job is going to be. And you don't know what the resources are going to be at that job, and you don't know, um, or you may know very quickly, if you're going to get those resources. And so there are certainly some places that will give you the things you need to be, quote, to be successful. I don't think, quote, unquote, because successful is, is, is clear. But clearly, you know, you went someplace and you had to kind of help create this. And so what do you say now today, if, if somebody was coming out, should they be uh, intrepid enough? to build this and say, I'm going to, because you, you sold your vision to uh, to Berman and Yo. I, I'm going to say that and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you sold your vision and they went along with it. One, um, everybody doesn't necessarily have that skill set. Um, and, you know, you use the resources that you had. And so what should someone that wants to go off and do this, knowing that, you know, if you go to some of these shops, they say, well, you can only take this job. Um, and if you get these things, what should someone, you know, using your blueprint or should they use your blueprint or should we say, no, 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 this is not something we should do. We should only have the resources. Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think health services research has come into its own. And, um, you know, I, I think it's in a very different place today from uh, where it was, you know, when I was uh, the recorder of the AAS I remember uh, the first um, Academic Surgical Congress that uh, I was at, it was 70% basic science, 30% health services research in terms of the makeup and the abstracts. And by the time I finished my term, which was, I guess, two years later, uh, those were flipped completely. And I, th and I think the momentum is only continuing now such that the majority, I think, of learners um, who are interested in surgical science, for better or worse, are now interested in clinical and health services research. So I don't think the, the, the terrain is as challenging. However, I will say that, um, you know, I'm not sure... Everyone yet in surgical leadership, at least at a national level, understands what is implied by health services research. I think many will equate it with outcomes research or secondary data analysis. They don't understand necessarily the complexity of the different methodologies um, that all come under this umbrella of health services research. Secondly, I think some of the appreciation is a little superficial. And where people believe um, health services research is easy and basic science, and I've heard this, so I'm not making these words up, health services research is hard. And what I always say is health services research, like basic science, is easy to do poorly and hard to do well. And so I, I think um, what you have to do if you're a learner looking to find a residency program or, uh, you know, you are a resident looking to find a first job in health services research is, first of all, find a milieu where there is an understanding of what health services research is, either within that department 
or outside of the department. I think then it is to make sure that it, it is supported not on the cheap, but um, it is expensive to support a health services researcher in terms of protected effort, identification of mentorship, which almost certainly has to come from within the Department of Surgery, complemented often by expertise outside uh, the Department of Surgery. And that's where I think it's really important to pivot and look at that larger landscape of you know, is there a, a school of public health? Is there population a population health program? Is there um, meaningful epidemiology and biostatistics presence? Um, are there people who can mentor around the specific methodology, you know, you are interested in pursuing? You need to look for that expertise to build um, the team. And I think if you don't have those things, I think success is more distant. So those would be the things I, I would talk, uh, ask about and really require. Um, but it starts with a fundamental understanding of the importance of health services research. And I think the best departments of surgery today understand that, you know, we, each of us should be agnostic about the methodology that people pursue. There is value in basic science and translational science and health services research, and the very best departments of surgery can support, and this takes incredible resources, but can support a broad portfolio. Um, and if they can't, then that's okay, but then it may not be the best place to go to be a health services researcher. So then... Um the trainee then some should maybe consider if there's an opportunity if your shop doesn't have it maybe going away and doing some time somewhere else to gain those tools i do i you know i i think um it is all critically important and i think as a learner and as a junior faculty member can you start from scratch I suppose you can, but two years is incredibly short. Many would argue it's too short a time. So I think you need to come in, you know, with a running start. And that's why I don't think it's really appropriate for learners or quite frankly today, junior faculty to have to do that. I think much better is to come to that mature environment where you are supported or certainly you could play a really creative, pivotal role as a junior faculty member, but having to start from scratch, design, define, figure out how to resource, I don't know, having done a little of that myself, it, it takes a long time. Um, and I think the good news is that there is a large probably still a large minority of academic departments of surgery that totally get this and subscribe to it. And for instance, within the AS, I think many of the thought leaders, both existing and rising thought leaders in health services research, are actually in the Association for Academic Surgery. So that's a great segue. And so you are a chair of surgery. And so how do you think this, your research, your academic uh, pursuits have informed you as a leader? Because um, certainly, um, um, you know, we're, this is we, where our previous interview, we kind of defined a new triple threat um, and talked a little bit about this. And so how do you think this work, um, both um, the, and then the policy implications of your work, how's that informed you as a leader? 
Yeah. Um, so I, I think you can do anything, but you can't do everything. So I sort of don't believe, in fact, most of us barely do one thing well, let alone two. <laughs> so, you know, I think in, uh, in a really great department of surgery, this triple threat is as rare as hen's teeth. I would argue the the best department of surgery is one where you have a bouquet of flowers made up of a million different, you know, colors. And um, having the master clinician, that's great. Having the master educator, that's great. Having the um, surgeon scientist who is a basic scientist is great. And I think to have the richest department of surgery, the most colorful department of surgery, you have a group of people who are um, compelled by health services research. And, um, you know, I will say as chair, first of all, I think having a background in health services research is uh, incredibly valuable, like incredibly valuable. Every day I use um, training that I got as a health services research, and that's because I think the contemporary academic surgeon travels in um, a world where there is no longer us and them, it's we. And, um, you know, the healthcare marketplace is evolving. And while we worry about academics, a lot of the time, I would say the majority of my time now is spent doing strategy. And that requires health services research each and every day. So it's incredibly valuable to me personally, as a leader in, in healthcare. Um, how has it uh, informed my my brief time so far at UCSF? So UCSF, known for surgical science, but really known for basics and translational science. So we really, we are new uh, to health services research. Um, fortunately, I have come to a department where um, we have, I don't have the time to be that thought leader. I don't want to be that thought leader. I want to support other thought leaders. So we have a nucleus of senior health services researchers, Dr. Emily Finlayson and Dr. Liza Wick in geriatrics and in quality and patient safety. So you start with this nucleus of mentorship, you invest in them, you um, uh, uh, celebrate their successes where Learners see the applications every day. They see the success of great mentors, and they mimic. And um, very quickly, I think you can recalibrate um, the temperature of the department where we now put on the same platform, an equal platform, there's no higher pedestal, but an equal platform, health services research and um, basic and translational science. And when one learner succeeds, as you know, uh, it, the floodgates open and more want to follow. And I think the investment we made very early on was to make sure the first one or two learners, residents who worked with these health services researchers were incredibly successful. So that's sort of been the recipe, but it's sort of like um, starting over again, uh, which is kind of cool. But now the nice thing is I'm basically watching and cheering. I'm no longer on the field, which is super cool because my knees hurt, my, <laughs> my shoulder hurts, and I may have been hit around the head a few too many times. But it's kind of cool being the coach on the sidelines and uh, watching other people quarterback the team so it's cool 
So you're in a home stretch. You're almost done. We've okay. Got two more things for you. Oh, I thought you meant in terms of my career. <laughs> you know about the, my pink slip? What, the what's pasture is right maybe? over there. The pasture is coming. No. But um, what do you see now as the future, right? If you were going to have your crystal ball, you know, how should we be thinking about this? You know, certainly, as you said, you know, we see more and more trainees wanting to do this. Um, as we see from the fall course, they're becoming more sophisticated than many of us are. We had a, one session straightly on informatics and their words that I've never heard before. And so, you know, what do you see as the future as you look in your crystal ball? Yeah, so uh, it's um, super bright. Um, you know, one observation I would make is um, the world in which I travel is largely populated by dyads and triads. There are these groups of people who are communally leading different things in healthcare and in surgery. And as you know, a dyad or triad usually has a at least one clinician, say a surgeon, but then there are these other folks. And when it's a dyad, it's usually a manager or an administrator who has a skill set that many would see as being inaccessible or outside the portfolio of a surgeon. And I see a future where surgeons are sophisticated health services researchers. They understand the practical application of their science and want to reach a state of evidence-based practice such that we won't need that administrator. We won't need that manager. Surgeons will be empowered to lead. And I think that's what we want. Why? Because surgeons listen to surgeons much more than they listen to managers, administrators, business people. And so what I would say, and I'm a, I, I think I'm a surgeon scientist, is I would encourage the people listening who have a passion for health services research to pursue it, um, but then to take their science and identify the implications of the science. And I think that's where we still have to go in surgery. We sometimes focus on the results and the conclusions, but don't translate and message into the implications. And I would like to see a world where surgeons are leaders in every way. And I suspect those leaders will be health services researchers. That's outstanding. I tell my mentees about what's your policy. Yeah. Right? You know, right. If you want to do That's something, good, yeah. we're not doing it just to do it, right? right? You know, if there's going to be a policy implication on this. And let's try to make sure those stakeholders are involved and ask them. What do you? What would you think is important for us to see, so that will be right. help us shape our work uh, in a, a priori fashion? I love that. So we like to ask all of our folks um, to tell us something about them that we don't all know. Something fun, maybe it's not fun, maybe it's just interesting about you um, that would be uh, novel for the listener to hear. Um. Uh, okay, I, um, okay. We, we, we feed your pit bull on Twitter, so we don't Yeah, it's not that. the pit bull, no. <laughs> so um, I am an unabashed fan, aficionado, scholar of rosés. Hmm. And um, uh, I have been such for probably decades, uh, before it was cool to like rosé, rosé all day, but um, I exclusively drink rosé. 
and I'm not promoting alcohol ingestion, <laughs> but... Public service announcement. <laughs> I do not, but that is my preferred beverage, is the rosé. So and I'm proud. You're in the right uh, part of the country uh, <laughs> to, to fulfill that. <laughs> Everything is intentional. <laughs> <laughs> that is outstanding. Uh, well, my wife is a lover of rosés as well, so one day we'll have to have a, uh, a, a drink. Dr. Julia and Sosa, we really appreciate you spending some time with us, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.